going to turn in our Bibles to the prophet quoted more in the New Testament than any other. In fact, uh, he's quoted more than all the other prophets combined. Uh, John the Baptist defined his ministry uh, with this prophet's words. Jesus actually began his ministry preaching from this prophet's words. And so, of course, we're speaking of the prophet of Isaiah. So let's take our Bibles and turn them into uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. We're going to look at it in its entirety today in a message entitled, Come now and let us reason together. So let's take our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, once again, we just say thank you for gathering us here today. And we pray, Lord, you'd give us ears to hear you, God, and a desire, a heart that's willing and ready to, to respond appropriately to you. And God, as we begin on this uh, venture of journeying through the book of Isaiah that you would teach us, that you would uh, exhort us, that you would examine us, that you would challenge and change us, that we might be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Everybody say, amen. amen. Often when we think of the prophets of old, uh, we think of men who foretold the works of God. But they were also men who told forth the word of God. And they acted in many respects like a good doctor. They would diagnose the problem. They would prescribe the remedy and then warn of the ramifications of ignoring or not acting upon the prescription. And so when a prophet would declare a vision of the future, the exhortation, it was to really exhort or encourage people to obey God today. Peter put it this way. He said, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And the idea being that since this is what will be ultimately, what kind of person ought you to be presently in light of what's coming, you see? Uh, now, a couple things that you should know about uh, the book of Isaiah. Sorry, I've got this little sinus thing, man. My mouth is dry today. That's not one of them. A uh, couple of things that you should know about the book of Isaiah. One is that it wasn't all written in just one sitting. You know, it wasn't like the prophet sat down and penned uh, the entirety of the scroll. Uh, we'll see from the very first verse that his ministry spanned uh, about 60 years in totality and encompassed the reign of several kings. Also, one other thing you might want to keep in the back of your mind, or let me just say get out of your mind from the very beginning, is the fact that uh, Isaiah is, if you think it's written in chronological order, you're going to mess yourself all up. It's, it's not chronological in the way that it's, it's laid out. And so well, let's just get that out of our minds. Uh, from the very beginning. Now, there are multiple sections to the book, but there's two uh, primary uh, books. So I'm not sure why that scripture's up there. That's like way, way on down the road. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, there's two primary sections, and they are uh, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. You go, wow, 66 chapters. Uh, are we going to study all this? Yeah, absolutely we are. Uh, however, I, you know, whether we're going to go every, you know, a nice long journey over the course of a year or so, or maybe we'll break it up to it. We'll see what the Lord has. Uh, but 66 chapters, let's turn our attention to the very first verse. Uh, we read here, oh, I'm on the wrong page. Isaiah chapter 1 
In verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, this is not Amos the prophet. This is a different fella. Uh, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, or some would say Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, I always debate how much time I want to spend opening, you know, in the opening study of a book upon historical and background content. Uh, just to kind of keep it concise, what we deduct from this verse is the approximate time frame of Isaiah's ministry. And from that, we can kind of get a grasp of what was happening historically. And Isaiah prophesied, and guys, I'm going to give you years, but you should know that they're approximate. It could be three, five on this side, five, seven on that side, but approximately within the time frame of 750 BC to around 690 BC. And the most biblically significant event that happened in his lifetime was the carrying off into captivity the northern kingdom of Israel into uh, Assyria or by the Assyrians. Now Israel, if you remember, quick little history lesson here, initially and only was reigned in its total geographic circumference by three kings. Uh, King Saul, then King David, and then King Solomon. But toward the end of Solomon's life, Solomon began to kind of backslide and build monuments and allow for the worship of various pagan gods. And what that did was open the floodgates of idolatry for the kings to come. And believe me when I tell you that the gates opened wide. But after Solomon's reign, his son Rehoboam, imposed a tax burden upon the people. And it was so intense. You remember, he kind of got a little uppity with them. They were like, hey, listen, your dad got a lot done in his lifetime, and it was a heavy burden. Now, listen, if you will just lighten the load a little bit, we will serve you with all that we are and all this. And he sought for some counsel. And you got to be careful who you seek counsel from, because the older men who served with his dad were like, that's good advice, Rehoboam. You should probably listen to him. They'll serve you. And the young guys who were with him, who were kind of, you know, new to the scene and wanting to, I, I don't know what their motive motive was, but they were like, give it, take it easy on them. Bro, you should tell them, you know, don't let them challenge your authority like that. Tell them, not only am I not going to take it easy, but there's going to be more, you know, pressure in my little pinky than my daddy. And so what happened was, is it caused them to say, hey, you know what? We're done with you. And so what happened uh, was they officially seceded from Judah. Now, ultimately what happened was Judah and Benjamin remained in the south, okay? And then the remaining 10 tribes, of course, Levi was absorbed in that in Jerusalem, but then you remember Ephraim and, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh were kind of split under Joseph. Some of this, I don't know why, I'm, maybe this is interesting to you, uh, but be that as it may, the 10 remaining tribes uh, comprised Israel to the north. So there was Israel in the north, there was Judah in the south. Are you with me? Do I need to go over all that again? <laughs> you guys are like, eh. But uh, the southern kingdoms, now listen, the southern kings of Judah that followed after this split were a mixture. Some were good, some were godly, some were uh, wicked. Uh, of the kings of the north in, in Israel, not one was good. They were all wicked and rebellious toward God. But 
Again, 25 years or so after Isaiah began his ministry, the northern kingdom was overwhelmed, overrun, carried off into captivity by Assyria. Now, Assyria would continue to advance, continue to press on into Judah. They would come all the way up to the gates, essentially, of Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. We'll see that later on in the book. But what happened was God fought for them, killed 185,000 Assyrians in the course of a single night, which devastated them and caused them to return uh, home. Then, historically, what happened was Egypt conquered Assyria, and then Babylon conquered Egypt, and then it would be the Babylonians who would carry off and conquer Judah, taking them into captivity a little over a hundred years uh, after the northern kingdom had been conquered. So you guys got all that in the back of your head? Now, maybe I'm uh, guilty of oversimplifying that. Believe me, that was a quick rundown. But that's the basic gist. Now, if you want the biblical passages that Isaiah was prophesying into, you're going to want to write down and read later 2 Kings chapters 15 through 21 and 2 Chronicles uh, chapters 26 through 33. Now, of the kings listed here in verse 1, uh, Uzziah, or Uzziah, however you want to say, was classified as a good king. However, ultimately in the end, he was stricken with leprosy because he ventured into the holy place, which even kings were not allowed to do. Um, his son, Jotham, was a good king. Ahaz, however, was a bad king. And then finally, Hezekiah was a good king as well. But it was Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, who was the single most wicked king in Judah's history, who is believed to have been the one who put Isaiah to death. Uh, most believe, and strong tradition suggests, that Manasseh had Isaiah killed by having him sawn in two. And uh, many of the, many believe that the reference, when you read Hebrews chapter 11, and it's talking about the hall of faith there, you know what I'm talking about, and how uh, these men who were forced to wander the earth, and they hid in caves, and they were taken, and they were tortured, and they were tormented, some of whom, he says, were sawn in two, or cut in two, of whom the world was not worthy, and people believe the reference to being cut in two, it points us back to Isaiah. Now, this particular prophecy uh, in this chapter, probably took place during the 16-year reign of Ahaz, the wicked king, okay? So let's jump into it. That's what you get for historical content, background information. Look at verse 2. The prophet writes, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. And so the book of Isaiah, it opens in the form and in the fashion of a courtroom drama. And God is calling heaven and earth to be the jury uh, to witness 
what it is that he's about to say about and against his people. They've resisted him, they've rebelled against him, and now he will state his case against them. Now to me, ladies and gentlemen, this is sort of a sobering reminder of the fact that God is on the throne, and he is the one with whom humanity has to do. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you remember the scene. You can recall it in your mind's eye. There they were, Luke chapter 4, Jesus being taken and kind of violently, forcefully uh, shoved to the edge of a cliff. And they wanted to throw him over. They wanted to be done with him. You see, they had it in their minds that because they didn't like what he had to say, that they could just get rid of him and not have to deal with him anymore. And listen, that's not a whole lot different than what man has sought to do with God today. You know, the world thinks that because they don't like what God has to say, uh, what he desires, what he demands of us, that they can just kind of remove him from his throne, uh, strip him of his authority, take him to the edge of the proverbial cliff and just sort of shove him over. But when you read through that passage in the gospel of Luke, you discover the people were unsuccessful in trying to get rid of Jesus. And even so, God is still on the throne. Ladies and gentlemen, he's not abdicated it. He's not abandoned it. And he will judge the world in righteousness. Now here he's dealing with his own people. But again, it's as Peter said, for the time has come, notice, for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, oftentimes we tend to believe that God should start, you know, with the unbeliever, with the ungodly. God says no. When it comes to establishing righteousness, uh, to meeting out justice, I'm starting with my own house first. Think about it. Ladies and gentlemen, who are you more concerned with? And it's not that you're not concerned for everyone, but obviously we have to say honestly, who are you more concerned with, someone else's children or your own? God says, I've nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. You know, as parents, we can appreciate uh, the frustration, the exasperation that God expresses with this. Because we know how galling, how irritating, how infuriating it can be. And I'm not going to look toward any of my kids in the moment. But, you know, for our children to disregard or disobey our direction. And you can have thoughts like, you know, after everything I've done for you and how I've nurtured you, how I've provided for you, how I've sought to give you, you know, an above and beyond be a blessing to you. And this is how you respond. Ladies and gentlemen, so often, and and we try to be good parents, but what if you were the perfect parent? God is the perfect heavenly father. And yet we have... And we so often treat God, disregard and disrespect God in an infinitely greater way. And he says, my people are treating me like rebellious children who have no regard, no respect for all that I have done in delivering them, protecting them, providing for them. They've grown corrupt, he says, and rebellious toward me. They've turned their backs on me. Look at the words, family, that God uses to describe 
the state of the nation. He says, a sinful nation, laden with iniquity. What does laden mean? And here it comes. It means weighed down. You remember when Jesus said, come to me, all you who are heavy or who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, he's saying, look, if you're at the place where your sin has worn you down, has worn you out, he says, come to me. And I will relieve you of that burden and I will give you rest. In other words, he clarified that rest for your soul, you see. But God calls them here a sinful nation laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. Ladies and gentlemen, not just that they've been corrupted, but that they've become corruptors. They're influencing others in ungodly ways. They've forsaken the Lord. They've provoked him to anger and turned away backward. Uh, in other words, they're going the wrong way. Now, historically, if, if uh, you were to do a little research, outwardly you would discover that, uh, at least initially here, uh, Judah was prospering. But inwardly they were falling deeper and deeper into despair, depravity, disrepute. But family, this is the danger of abundance. When things are tough, how many of you can identify? When things are tough, man, we're praying, we're going to church, we're drawing near to God, we're seeking his word for hope and for help and for direction and everything. But when things are good, apathy, lethargy, we relax our disciplines in seeking the Lord and spending time in his word. And before we know it, Man, we've kind of just drifted off in to compromise. And God had warned them of all of this in his word. It, it, the warning was like an, I'll bless you, but beware and be careful how you handle it kind of warning, kind of uh, word. We read in Deuteronomy 6, when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. In other words, man, it was all graced to you. God's going to just grace you. He's going to bless you. He's going to overwhelm you with his goodness. When you have eaten and are full, then notice, beware. Why? Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. It's hard when things are tough, but beware when things are going good. That's when we can so easily forget about the Lord who brought us out, right, of the house of bondage. Now, you might think in verse 3 that God is saying that they're acting as dumb as an ox, as stubborn as a mule, but God would say, no, that would be to insult the animals. He's saying that at least the ox knows its owner. And the donkey is smart enough to recognize where its food comes from. But my people, God says, they don't know. They don't consider the fact, and I don't know if this is a word for someone today, that God is the one who tends to and takes care of all your needs, you see. 
He's the one who's blessed them, yet they've turned their backs on him. What a word of warning for our generation today. Look at verse five. He says, why should you be stricken again? For He says, you will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And so the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard. As a, uh, but a hut in the garden of cucumbers as a besieged city. They would uh, leave, they would build these little lean-tos at harvest time and guard the crops from, uh, you know, uh, animals or would-be thieves. And then after the harvest, they would just leave them. They would abandon them. And he says, that's, that's what it's like. Uh, and he says, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Now, years ago, former President Obama said, uh, uh, elections, I, don't, I can't do an Obama, Obama, elections have consequences, you know. And hopefully, people are waking up to that reality. Uh, and, and many politicians have said that since. But here's the deal, so does every decision we make. You understand that. The Bible is clear. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. And again, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Again, from the outside, the nation doing fine. But from God's perspective, the nation was like someone beaten from head to toe, just left on the side of the road to die. Bruises, he says, open, untended to, putrefying sores, disease, desolate, much like the church in Revelation 3. You say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And God is compelling them to repent of their sin. He says in verse 5, why should you be stricken again? In other words, why continue in a manner... And think this through. Why continue down a path that leads to destruction, that leads to discipline? During the reign of Ahaz, the kingdom of Israel was attacked and pillaged by various nations. And God is telling them that the moral decline, listen, the moral decline is the reason that their nation is beginning to be devoured and burned and left desolate. <coughs> Excuse me. They're going from prosperity down the slippery slope into poverty. Why? Because of their moral decline and abandonment of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is very hard to read this sinful nation laden with iniquity, evildoers, corruptors, forsaken the Lord, without thinking of our own nation. How can we not draw the parallels? Having the birth, this nation having the birth and beginning of a people who simply wanted to 
the freedom to worship God, uh, wanted to establish a nation under the word of God. Guys, you, many of you know this, but some of you may not, that the Bible was the very first textbook in the public school. And it was the book from which children were taught to read. Now, fast forward 150 years or so, and our nation has turned its back on God. And the whole head is sick. The heart faints, wounds, bruises, putrefying sores. Our cities, literally, you guys, you saw it on television or social media like every night, just what, a year ago, a year and a half ago? Cities being burned in the mostly peaceful uh, <laughs> r- riot, I would say. You know, a protest, mostly peaceful protest as cities are being burned and cars overturned and, you know, uh, land just being devoured. But rather than being shaken to sobriety, saying, what have we done? And turning back to the Lord, well, like Israel, sinking deeper into their pagan practices, rather than repent, we've gone deeper into depravity. Guys, do you understand since Roe v. Wade in 1973, as a nation, we are guilty of over 64 million abortions? 64 million. The left has gone on the campaign, you know, defund the police, violent crime on the rise, people encouraging, think this through, this is happening right now, people encouraging children to reconsider their gender, five, six, seven years old. And wanting the government to pay for surgical procedures to make permanent this. Guys, this is, that's child abuse. I mean, think about it. You know, you're not, we don't trust you as a child to, to have the, the responsibility, the wherewithal, or the understanding to, you know, even see a rated R movie. Not that I'm for that, but I'm just saying... You know, you got to be 17 to decide which kind of movie is good for you. But if you want to decide what gender you want to be and have a surgical procedure to make it permanent, five, six, seven years old, you get it. Come on. You know, I mean, ungodly agenda driven programming on every streaming platform. Guys, the woke mind virus lulling a nation to sleep. Prospering outwardly, perishing inwardly, but stubbornly clinging to our sin. Think about that. But even in judgment, we read in verse 9, the Lord was merciful. Now, check it out, though. The distinction between Sodom and Jerusalem wasn't the behavior. It wasn't the attitude of the people. The difference was in the grace and mercy of God. You see that? Now, look at verse 10. He says here, he's trying to rattle them. To, uh, to be not woke, but awake, okay? He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's likening Jerusalem to Sodom, and you give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Guys, under, underline these things, says the Lord. He says, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of cattle, of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample on my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices 
Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moon and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, like, you know, today uh, when we pray, the tendency, you know, at least we teach children initially. Why do we teach them to fold their hands? Uh, so that they won't be bothering other people, you know, uh, while you're trying to pray. And so we teach them, let's, let's, you know, clasp our hands, let's bow our head. But in the ancient world, they would lift their head to the heavens and they would lift up their hands as they pray like this, you see. And so he says, when you spread out your hands, it's the posture of prayer. I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, the repetition, the on and on and on. I will not hear why your hands are full of blood. You see what's happening here, right? The people were engaged in all these sinful, self-seeking, self-gratifying, worldly, pagan practices Yet even in the midst of all their rebellion, listen, they continued in their religious rituals and their spiritual ceremonies. In other words, they continued bringing sacrifices to the Lord. They continued burning incense there at the temple before the Lord. They continued in their sacred assemblies and God quite frankly if I could just say it bluntly was sick of it all it was as if they thought that their religion hear me and their rituals somehow made up for or brought balance to their rebellion and listen it's not that God was sick of or no longer wanting them to honor the sacrificial system that he had established for them but guys, you understand something about the mosaic, uh, sacri- the Levitical, you know, aspects of the sacrificial system, and that is that this whole system presupposes that the person making the sacrifice has turned from their sin. They want to be right with God. They want to be pleasing to God. And so what he's saying here is that empty actions mean nothing to God. It would be like saying, if we brought it up into a modern vernacular, why are you even coming to church? Why are you coming here? Why are you singing the worship songs? Why are you having the potlucks, the sacred you know, assemblies, or putting money in the offering? God says, I'm sick of it. You know, you live like the world all week and then you come to church, not because you want to change, but to balance the scales and do your religious duty. And God's saying, you know you have no intention of honoring me with your life, and yet you're still, you know, here you are, and you're still going to be getting drunk, you're still going to be getting high, you're still watching pornography, you're still uh, being unfaithful to your spouse. God says, I'm fed up with it. Okay, now listen, if you find yourself somehow rationalizing along the lines of, well, you know, I know I shouldn't be checking out pornography all the time, but man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still going to church, you know, at least I'm still going to church. Or uh, I know it's wrong to get drunk, I know I shouldn't be getting high, but you know, I'm, I'm still tithing, I'm giving to the church, I'm kind of, you know, fill in the blank. It, if you're in a place whereby you know you're engaged in some 
sinful course of action, whatever the Holy Spirit, you know, may be uh, confirming and convicting, and you're trying to make yourself feel better, or trying to somehow, uh, you think that you've balanced the scales because you went to church, or you help at the homeless shelter, or you sing the worship, or you place money in the offering, that's exactly the kind of thing that God is referencing right here, okay? Religious, listen to me, religious activity doesn't make up for a rebellious heart. Does that make sense? Religious activity does not balance the scale, does not make up for a rebellious heart. Let me put it to you another way. Maybe this will shed a little light on something. Approximately 70% of Americans today claim to be Christian. Think about that. Seven out of every 10 people in this country will tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian. Let me ask you something. Does the culture of our country really reflect that? You know, when a person comes to church but has no desire to change or doesn't really care or isn't even really willing to listen, God is like, why even be there? Going to church doesn't make God happy if we really have no heart to honor him. Uh, you know, for outward ritual, and I'm just speaking, you know, textually here with regard to rituals, ceremonies, and such, but you could say your routine, outward religious routine, but for outward ritual to take on any meaning before God, it really has to be accompanied by inward righteousness. Does that make sense? Uh, in other words, even doing what God has told me to do doesn't matter if my heart isn't right. It becomes an abomination to him. Like Paul wrote to Titus, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. In other words, they have all the right rhetoric, they have all the right talk, they show up at church every Sunday, but the way they live their lives, you would never know they were a believer. You'd never know they were a Christian. Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Guys, if your heart isn't humbled, changed, and surrendered before God, then again, religious service, and I use the term religious very lightly, uh, it, it just, it, church attendance, it just doesn't mean anything to God. In fact, he abhors it. You, you remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he murdered her husband. He realized when, when Nathan came to him, confronted him, and the conviction was upon him, God wasn't just looking for him to offer another sacrifice. Oh, we'll just go kill a bull. It'll all be okay. You know, just make up for it by going to church. Well, you've done this, you've done that. Man, I better get to church, you know, kind of a thing. He said, listen, for you do not, David said to God, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Check this out. Guys, etch this in your heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, oh God, your religious rhetoric, your religious routine, God despises. You see that? But the broken heart before him, the repentance, that sense of, of the broken spirit, these God will not despise. Running to a religious routine and not truly repenting, it doesn't impress the Lord. God says you can spread out your hands, you can, 
Make your prayers to me all you want again and again and again. I'll hide my eyes. I'll stop my ears. Your hands are full of blood. In other words, all the praying, all the tithing, going to church will not cause God to turn his attention to you if you're harboring sin in your life. Write it down, read it later. Psalm 66 and verse 18. Let's keep going here, guys. We're going to pick up the pace just a little bit. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Guys, these are such key verses. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressors. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widows. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing, underline it, and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now earlier, God compared Jerusalem to Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that? Now we have a tendency, uh, maybe I'll just throw out a test. No, I won't. We, we tend to think that they were judged for what? Homosexuality, right? And certainly those are sins with which, for which they will give account. But in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 16, we're told that the sin of Sodom was that they heaped luxury upon themselves and had no compassion for the poor and needy. Even so, here the Lord says that their corruption in Judah was showing up not in their religious routine, not in their going to church every Sunday, but in how they were treating other people. He says, wash yourselves. Put away the evil of your doings. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. What does that mean? For example, he says, seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Guys, this is what John the Baptist in the New Testament vernacular would refer to as the fruit of repentance. Okay? Uh, listen, it's the same message we'll see and we see all throughout Scripture. Repent of your sin, bring forth the fruit of repentance or righteousness. In other words, if you've turned from your sin, if you've truly surrendered to God, there will be evidence of that in your life. Does that make sense? And guys, here's the thing. God wants to do that for you. Did you see it? I hope you underlined it. Verse 18, he says, come now and let us reason together. Hey, you know, we, we opened that. Remember when the, the curtain was drawn back here in Isaiah uh, chapter one, and we said it's taking on the form and, and the fashion of a courtroom drama. Well, here God says, come now, let us reason together. In other words, let's, let's settle this thing out of court. Okay, come to me. Let's settle this. If they would turn from their sin, God says, I'll wipe the record clean. Now, God had every reason, every right to punish them. He offers to pardon them. Think about that. Now, guys, earlier, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about the horrible, atrocious 
things, you know, how we will do all this stuff during the week and then we come to church and we're trying to balance the scales and make up for the bad and how God hates all that. And maybe you were sitting there thinking, man, why am I here? Maybe I should quit coming to church. God says, no, don't quit coming to church. Turn from your sin. You see, that's the idea. Let me cleanse you, God is saying. Let me make you new. Cease to do evil. Don't just talk about it. What do we say, Jenny? Be Be about it. Don't just talk about it. Be about it. Do something about the sin patterns in your life. Learn to do right. Put in the work. Show that you're serious about turning from your sin. Bring forth that fruit of repentance. Lead a life pleasing to God. Give God His way in your heart, your life. He says, Listen, let's reason this thing out and let's do it, underline it, circle it, highlight it now. Right now, God says. It's madness to resist a God of infinite wisdom, infinite love, infinite grace, and infinite power. Reason, think it through. Reason will lead you to humble yourself and surrender your life unconditionally to Jesus Christ. And we love the fact that Isaiah likened our sin to scarlet and crimson, not because of the color, I dig the colors, but because in the ancient world, scarlet and crimson was the harshest, most secure Die that would attach itself to the fabric. And so what he's saying here, when God says, come, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as wool, though they're as crimson, they'll be white like snow. What God is saying is that they were going, how could this happen? God's saying, it can't by you. There's no way that you can cleanse yourself, be it through good works. Well, I got to make up for all the bad I've done by doing good. You can't cleanse yourself through good works, noble intentions, uh, some self-inflicted suffering. Sometimes we feel like we've sinned. We need to suffer for it somehow. We inflict some kind of penalty on ourselves, asceticism. You remember Martin Luther used to whip himself, try to make up for the sin in his life. Time can't make it go away. Guys, not even death can remove the stain of sin. But God can remove the stain, the shame, and the power of sin in your life. Now, Isaiah doesn't say it because he didn't know at the time. He believed by faith. But we know, looking back, the way God does this is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So come now, he says. A lot of times we think we really just go, "Ah, come now and let us reason together, you know? Like, come on now. No, he says, come now. Now, come now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Don't wait till another time. Listen, there's no guarantee of another time, is there? Don't continue down that destructive path even for another minute, God says. Come now. Let's get this thing settled. But there is a conditional clause, isn't there? Did you see it? It's in verse 19. You have to be willing. You have to be willing. How, how, how will it, I know if, if you are willing, you'll be, you see the next word? Obedient. Willingness leads to obedience and God does the work. But if you refuse and rebel, people think I'm the only guy about alliterations, you know, uh, Isaiah liked him too. 
if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. I want you to think about this just for a quick second, guys. Which phrase more accurately defines your life? Just think in your own heart and mind. And none of us are perfect. None of us are, you know, we're all a work in progress. Let's get that out there right now. But which phrase more defines your life? Willing and obedient or refusal and rebellion? Think about it. Now, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Uh, The only thing I'm going to highlight here real quick is verse 22. Sin pollutes the otherwise pure. Okay, it waters down what is good and right. Everyone, he says, loves bribes, follows after rewards. In other words, they'll compromise for the right price. All right. Now, look at verse 24, and we're just going to read through the end of the chapter here. Matter of fact, uh, Karen, whenever you're ready there, you can begin to make your way forward, but we're going to close here. Verse 24 through the end of the chapter, okay? Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, he says, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries, take vengeance on my enemies, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy, the worthless, the watered down, you see. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen, for you shall be as as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. Now, the references to the terebinth trees and the gardens uh, were places of idolatry. Okay, These are the places they would go and worship, do these pagan practices. That's why he calls the city a harlot. They were faithful to God, but they went after other gods, which in fact were not gods. They were cheating on God. Uh, They were being unfaithful to God. And God is saying that he's going to deal with and take care of his enemies and take away his adversaries. But guys, the goal, the goal was not to ruin them. Did you catch that as we read through? The goal was to redeem them and restore and reconcile them. Listen, when we're under the heavy hand of God's discipline, His goal isn't, I'm just going to punish you. Uh, His goal is to purify you, to purge us of sin and unrighteousness, that we might look to Him, walk with Him, and be faithful once again, you see. And I love that He says here in 
I don't know if you underline it or not, but it's in verse 29 where he says, they shall be ashamed and they, you know, you will be embarrassed. You know, it's good. Listen to me. It's good to be ashamed and embarrassed of our sin. He's like, you guys aren't, they, there was no shame in their sin. He says, I'm going to bring you back to that place. You will be ashamed. You will be embarrassed of your sin. Today, people aren't ashamed of their sin. They, they flaunt their sin, seek to impose it upon others so they feel better about themselves, you know. Our nation is sick, but God can save us. And God help us, right, individually, nationally, to turn to him, not away from him. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord, right? And so let's set our hearts before him in prayer. God, I pray that we would be a people quick to respond to the conviction of your spirit. We don't want to be going through empty motions in our service to you, God. We want to honor you from the heart. We don't want to find ourselves in a religious routine, doing what we want through the week and just kind of, well, I kind of made up for it, went to church, whatever, you know. But that you would teach us, Lord. That you would restore us, God. That you would reconcile us to yourself. And as we make our way through the book of Isaiah, that you would strengthen us in these days to which you've called us. For surely you've set us and you've called us to a time such as this so that we would burn bright for you. The city set on a hill, light in the darkness, salt in a dying and decaying world. 